Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 44, You Only Live Once, where we will be looking at chapters 92 through 94 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of The Limits of Convention. Now, you're the one who chose The Limits of Convention, so later on, after I do my whole little spiel, I would like it very much if you could explain why. Anyway, if you're new here, please go back to the beginning of the podcast. Or don't. Not the episode, like the entirety of the entire podcast as a whole, because seriously, we are two thirds of the way through the wise man's fear right now. Why are you starting here? Maybe just go back to the beginning of the wise man's fear episodes. You don't have to go through all the way back through our back catalog. Shh. Anyway, each week we'll be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can technically text and apply to our real lives. Then we'll share a recommended thing of the week and probably have a Fernemos before that and wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. And before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher.books. Second, spoilers. If I haven't made that clear, spoilers. And also a word to our community. Please be kind to yourselves and one another and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. Thank you. So a little behind the scenes, one of our friends is in our state and we're recording a little bit early so that Will can go and hang out with the friend and shruggies on when we're ever going to do a recap or an interesting fact again. It is in cards. It is in theory going to happen. Don't know when. All right. Explain yourself. All right, so this series of chapters really concerns our little band regrouping after their big climactic encounter with the bandits and also doing what they have to do to survive and making choices that maybe wouldn't be considered the most upstanding or moral or what have you in other circumstances. The conventions basically are getting thrown away. At the same time, we're also discovering that Quoth, or rather more accurately, Quoth is discovering that all of these things that he thought he understood about Tempe and Adam were really only just scratching the surface. There's a lot more going on there. And then, of course, we're going to get to Felurian. I mean, ever so briefly. Yeah. Really what we find is there are some conventions that they don't really have a whole lot of use for, such as accurate bookkeeping about the amount of money that they're taking back to the mayor. And there are others where those conventions maybe are more important, such as knowledge of the Lithani. Those are conventions, for instance, that Tempe takes incredibly seriously, and he's trying to impress on both the same. All right, let's dive into the chapters, starting with the one that is teensy, teensy, tiny. Yeah, 92, Taberlin the Great, is just a couple paragraphs that fit onto a single page. And it's really just Quoth hazily recalling an exchange between Martin and Didan about the events of the climactic encounter with the bandits. Martin is clearly extremely shaken up about all of this. I mean, and to be fair, he is someone who has had pretty much no 
contact with the supernatural. He is someone who has exclusively lived a low fantasy life, and he suddenly finds himself thrust into a high fantasy world. Not only that, but let's understand that he just watched this upstart little child, because if Martin is our age or older, a 16-year-old is basically a baby. I have a little bit of a skewed perspective on this because I did go to college in my 30s with kids, I say kids, with people in their late teens, early 20s. So I have a little bit of a skewed perspective on that because, oh my God, are people in that age bracket super, super smart. And maybe not world-wise, but they are smart. And so I in no way want to diminish intelligence, but maybe their dump stat might still be wisdom. Yes. But Martin has just seen this person that is supposedly the leader that is essentially a child mutilate a corpse. I cannot overstate mutilate a corpse and use it to kill multiple people. I would be shirting my pants so bad if I saw someone voodoo dolling an actual person. Well, and doing so in a fairly matter-of-fact way. I mean, because Quoth is a high fantasy character. For him, magic is normal. It's something that he can do just, you know, lickety-split. It's no big deal for him. And for Martin, he's a low fantasy character. He's heard about magic, he's heard stories about magic, and even if he believes it, he's never actually seen it. And not only that, he had an encounter with someone who shrugged off an arrow into the leg as if it were nothing. So not only did he have a high fantasy character on his side, as terrifying as that was, he ran up against a high fantasy villain. Mostly these chapters concern us doing a little bit of wrap up to the whole saga of the bandit chase. Foth exploded a tree with lightning, supposedly. He called it down, according to all the stories. To him, he's going to be a little more humble and say he has no idea whether or not he actually did anything to do with instigating the lightning strike. He just used it to his advantage. He kind of guessed that it was going to happen. And therefore, you know, it's not that fantastical. Whatever. Trying to be humble. Not succeeding very well. Eh, tis quote. But surprisingly enough, one of the bandit's tents survived well enough to be kind of a med tent. They all were able to pile into it and not get absolutely drenched from here on out. And, you know, the rain is starting to stop and they're taking inventory of all of the things that are left in the bandit camp. And Hespa took an arrow to the knee. <laughs> they're also following the classic Skyrim tradition of loot everything in the hopes of selling it when you get back to town. I mean, I was going to suggest it was like normal for a D&D &D party. Yeah. I mean, okay, encounter's over, guys. Time to loot the corpses. Yep, it's fairly normal behavior for abandoned murder hobos. <laughs> and let's just admit that every D&D &D party is a band of murder hobos. Oh, yeah. So, Quoth kind of just wipes off the binder's chills, I guess. Yeah, apparently they... His friends wrapped him up and put him in the tent and kept him warm and he was able to sleep him off. Friends. Colleagues. Co-workers. Co-workers. Everyone except for Tempe took damage. Tempe's that good. 
Tempe just doesn't care. Everyone's avoiding Quoth, including Tempe, and Quoth is just like, eh, that's just Tempe. And then he's also saying privately, if I had not taken wisdom as my absolute dump stat, maybe I would have realized I was wrong. Yeah, one of the things that I noticed is when Tempe gives him instructions, it's no longer about how to do the K-Tan, but it's stuff about Lothani and stuff about language. What that tells me is that in Tempe's eyes, Quoth has proven that he does not need to know how to use power. He needs to know how to use power wisely. He doesn't need instructions on mechanics. He needs instructions on when it is appropriate to act. He also needs instructions on mechanics. He does need that too, yes. So for the most part, the rest of Quoth's co-workers dispatched the rest of the bandits, except they left at least one alive to go tell the tale because they were lazy. I don't know if lazy is the right word. I think more accurately, the juice was not worth the squeeze. Yeah, they were probably exhausted. Yeah. I mean, let's remember, like, Hespa has a wounded leg, so she can't exactly run. Martin is recovering from a serious cold. And Kvothe is... Out. Out. And Daydan is wounded. And so that leaves just Tempe. And, yeah, like, chasing one bandit through the forest is going to be a lot of extra work with very little reward. And it might actually be more rewarding if the bandit goes and tells people that, you know, maybe this whole bandit thing just isn't worth it. We get a little bit of wrap-up about the leader. His body was not amongst the gathered that they later set fire to. How matter-of-fact of you, Quoth. The tent has been squished by a rather large piece of tree. So they all assume that the dude is dead underneath the tree. Classic mistake. And then everyone else leaves Quoth to be the person to take care of the mutilated corpse, which he does. And then he promptly vomits. Yeah. Um, this is, I think, Quoth's waking mind reckoning with everything that happened. Like that encounter with the bandits, even as it's very action packed and everything you have to imagine was also pretty traumatic. I think this is both really actually reckoning with what he did and reckoning with who he is as a person, which may differ from the person that he likes to think that he is. I think if you were to ask both in normal circumstances what kind of person he is, he'd want to say that he is a decent person who is good to other people. He likes to think of himself that way. I don't think that we can accurately say that that's who he actually is. What we're really seeing is Quoth is an anti-hero, not a hero, in spite of what the stories might have you believe. He also goes about destroying the moments that he had made of each of his co-workers, which I think was a wise choice, even as his motivation was, I want them to like me and not be afraid of me, instead of, you know, that was a real deck move. I think part of it is he's recognizing that He's just now kind of gotten some sort of tenuous respect from them. And he realizes that if the fear element gets too much more, that could rapidly become very dangerous for him. And not just that they won't like him, it's that they might actively try to murder him. That's not going to be improved at all by the fact that he's the one who decided to 
stow away the recovered money. Yeah. Although he does the whole thing where he says, hey, how about we skim a little off the top and no one will be the wiser. I think that there are good reasons to have done that. He needs to, I don't want to say earn respect because I don't think that this is a way to earn actual respect, but rather he needs to convince his fellows to mostly do the right thing, even if it's not completely all the quote right thing and have a little bit of virtue and whatnot. I think it's a humanizing thing. So right now, in the eyes of his compatriots, he seems probably a little bit inhuman. You know, like, here's this genius kid who also happens to be commanding these vicious magics and wielding them with reckless abandon. And that's kind of terrifying. And especially if he's also supposed to be this super morally virtuous person who could decide at any moment that they're a threat or whatever. And what would he do to them? By saying, okay, hey, look, we all kind of want a little bit of money. It's okay. I recognize it. And let's think of this as payment for services rendered. We were hired to take care of a few bandits, not take down an encampment. That basically says to his compatriots that, look, he gets it. People got to eat. They need food on the table. It's perfectly understandable. He's not judging them. Dan needs to drink himself into a stupor. Martin needs medicine. All that stuff. Quoth, on the other hand, needs his loot, which is miraculously still dry and safe. And I swear that the case that Denna got for Quoth for that loot has got to be made of magic somehow. Like if we look at contemporary instrument cases, even the most ruggedized case that you can get isn't going to be that perfect. I mean, it survived a shipwreck. That really should have been enough in the first place. Right. It kind of acted like the piece of wood that Rose was on in Titanic. Yeah. yeah. Like, Quoth was able to basically float on this loot case that was completely sealed tight. Like, there was no damage to the leather or anything from the water. Like, salt water, even. This thing is made of magic. I'm thinking, like, even a contemporary gator case or whatever... It's got Kevlar fiber and everything and silicon seals and oh yeah all these uh, high-tech gaskets and padding and everything even those with exposed to shipwrecks and then constant rainfall will eventually show somewhere and tear and yet and yet well Kvothe sits there for an entire day playing his lute rather loudly because job's done Honestly, I don't think that they did a thorough enough job. The woods seem empty, as a DM might say. (laughs) As far as you can tell. You rolled a three. The woods seem empty. But you've been wrong before. (laughs) The other kind of interesting thing here is we get a little bit more about Tempe's aversion to music. I'd say aversion, but also deep-seated curiosity. It's kind of like people who are like on the surface, super anti-kink going, but I still want to know what you're doing. (laughs) There's a little of that. Like we haven't learned yet about the taboo around music within the ADEM culture. And as much as 
Quoth is learning forbidden things from Tempe. Tempe's also learning something forbidden from Quoth. Like music is something that's very intimate for the ADEM. And so it's not something that you just perform for anyone. Like public music is just unheard of for them. It's basically like public forking. I mean, honestly, the ADEM treat sex the way everybody else treats music and they treat music the way everybody else treats sex. It's the way that you handle golf and bowling. Yep, they have them reversed. The ADEM are a little bit weird. Explain your golf and bowling because seriously, I don't think anyone actually gets that inside joke besides us. Yeah, so historically, I score golf the way most people score bowling, and I score bowling the way most people score golf. And I'm really good at both of those. Anyway, we learn later on through the chapters that Tempe would like to learn how to play the lute, and also learn that Kvothe has never taught anyone how to play the lute. And I think that both of those things are challenges, especially if you're traveling and exhausted. I mean, we've been learning to play guitar for years, and while neither one of us are terribly good at it, I think both of us really enjoy it. And I think that there's something to be said for not needing to be perfect at something to enjoy it. Absolutely. And I think also the thing that both Kvothe and Tempe are recognizing is that there is a difference between knowing how to do something and then knowing how to teach someone how to do something. Those are two very different skill sets. The best guitarists aren't always great teachers. I mean, I had an absolutely genius mathematician as a teacher once trying to teach stuff that I had previously learned in like ninth grade to a bunch of college students who were design students and not math students. And he had a hard time wrapping his head around how to teach to people who don't think in math. Yeah. And so like for you, when you're learning guitar, you weren't raised with a foreknowledge of any instrument, nor were you raised with any foreknowledge of how to read sheet music or tab or any of that stuff. You understand that there are notes, you know, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, which sounds so funny when I don't actually raise my voice up to match the notes, but whatever. Or like, I'm sure that if I explained to you again what the notes on the piano are A through G, and there are sharps and flats and whatnot, eventually what would happen is what's happening exactly right now, which is your eyes are glazing over. And so your guitar teacher doesn't teach you that way, which I think is great. Yeah, absolutely. My teacher is actually really cool. He helps me to understand the mechanics of how to play and then how notes fit together and then how to mechanically make a song. Like, what's the difference between getting the rhythm just right and getting it just a little off? How to do those extra little fills that actually make something come alive. And yeah, I have a lot of fun with it. But you're not interested in the technicalities of music. Right. I'm not really interested in the theory itself. You know, I'm mostly interested in trying to play the songs that I like to listen to. And I think that that's wonderful for you. Mm -hmm. I, on the other hand, 
have some basic knowledge of music theory and generally understand how to play piano and generally can read sheet music if I'm trying hard enough. And so when I'm learning guitar, I'm filtering it through an imperfect and imprecise knowledge of piano. But I also understand notes and note values and like lengths of notes and how to base a rhythm off of reading what it is on a sheet of paper. Neither one of these are right and neither one of these are wrong. They're just our processes. Now on to the glaring elephant in the room or rather the not so smushed leader in the tent. Can't find the leader dude. Cinder, Ash, Brayden, whoever has escaped somehow. Isn't just like a little squished bug inside of a tent. Also there are lots of pieces of paper with lots of ink smudges that Quoth cannot read because it's wet out here. <laughs> and it makes Quoth a little bit upset because he can't figure out the mystery of who the leader was, even though he is terribly familiar. Yeah, like there's a lot of frustration with that because it's a little bit of mystery box storytelling, it feels like. Again, we aren't really any closer to figuring out who this guy is, what his deal is. Like... Again, if it's Cinder or Brayden, you're like, well, but why, <laughs> right? The why behind it is kind of confusing. Like, what is your motivation behind this whole thing? Because it seems kind of small potatoes. Yeah. Also, who takes a desk camping? I mean, granted, this is more like a military general's field tent. So this is where theoretically he's supposedly collaborating with people elsewhere so he's got to have something that he can write letters on and things like that the woods seem empty i mean granted they pretty much are bad game design good storytelling i don't know yeah <laughs> we have this little exchange where they find a locked box and both humbly allows everyone else to give it a try on opening it up and lockpicking and letting people frustrate themselves and blah, 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 blah. And then he magically opens the box with Edro. And hear me out. So he thinks that he probably just popped a latch after everyone else kind of loosened it for him, like, you know, opening a jar after somebody else has tried it. I think he might be right, and I think that the word Edro might be a mistranslation after however many years from the original story, because he keeps trying things like Edro to open up his box in the framing device, the one made of Roa wood, and it doesn't work. I don't think that that's actually a true thing that works. I think that he was right and that he popped the latch somehow by hitting it. Sometimes magic is magic, and sometimes... Magic is sleight of hand. Or you just get lucky. He says that one of the others actually probably tripped the lock earlier and the thing was just stuck. <laughs> and he just happened to bonk it at the right time. At least you didn't say boink it. I have discretion. <laughs> Though it does help his reputation, at least amongst the group, because this is not harmful magic. This is, oh, you got it open. Yeah, in addition to casting Fireball, he's able to cast Open Lock. <laughs> All these little utility spells that keep wizards useful. He even says, if I was going to be an Arcanist, I might as well be a famous Arcanist. Inside the box, 
There's a hand-drawn map that we will later find out is woefully inaccurate in terms of all the things that could be in the forest. <clears throat> the Swamp of Eternal Stench. Wait, that was the Bog of Eternal Stench. Swamp of Sorrows? Not sure. Something, we're going to draw it back to whatever. Basically a massive swamp that the bandits didn't bother to put on the map. There are lots and lots and lots and lots of gold coins in this thing, which accounts for the heft. And of course, that is why Quoth doesn't feel any sense of guilt handing out a royal to each one of his compatriots and then skimming a few more off the top for himself, which goes into this weird thing that we've got as a society when you don't have a lot taking from someone who you think has a lot or that you know has a lot doesn't feel bad because to you you've earned it and they haven't or at least they haven't put in a commiserate amount of effort in order to earn this much more than you have yeah i mean there's kind of a robin hood principle there right and at the same time, while it's tempting to think that he's stealing from the bandits, what he's really doing is he's stealing back from the bandits what had been taken from people's tax revenues, from collectors, which then actually makes me wonder, okay, so these taxes were collected from serfs, peasants, and minor lords, and all of these are in the form of royal coins, which are worth thousands of talents, right? Uh, no. He says that there's about 200 royals. Right. Which he translated to approximately 500 and something odd talents. Not one royal equals 500 talents. More like 200 equals 500 talents. Yeah. I guess the point is, though, that each one of these coins represents... A significant amount of money. Right. And so it's one thing if these are all coming off of lords. But then I'm sitting here wondering, but if these are things that have been collected by tax collectors from serfs and peasants and common folk, how many of them have that much? I actually don't think it is. I think it probably is local tax collectors have collected for the lord, mm -hmm. and then these are the royal tax collectors collecting from the lords. Gotcha. So it's already been changed. Yeah. Okay, cool. I withdraw my concern. Because otherwise, how would you carry that much weight legitimately like it would just be a whole ton of coins loose change <laughs> in boxes yeah i mean everyone thinks gold bars are cool but oh that's a really inefficient way to transfer wealth around when you could just use paper money which is why we use paper money yep so yeah we've got a splitting of the profits but again, it is really stealing from, at this point, Alvaron, because he's already recouped his losses by sending more tax collectors anyway. But I would much rather have a flat percentage of this is how much each person gets taxed from their wages and have, I don't want to say kickbacks, but like deductions that you can take as you have less money coming in so that ultimately your percentage goes down maybe to the point where if you don't make enough money to really survive you don't have to pay taxes because you should be propped up and so yeah i do think either we do a tiered system where the lowest earners get the least amount of percentage taxed and the highest earners or the highest wealth holders 
because people will skirt the earning part, but the highest wealth earners should pay a larger percentage to help prop up society. That's not what we do. People who have a fork ton of money like to hold on to it. And the people who have the least, there's that whole money can't buy you happiness. However, money can buy you relief from constant vigilance on how much money you have. Because like 10, 12 years ago, I had to pay attention to every single item's cost when I went to the grocery store. And now I can pay attention to the lump sum and not be so worried. We can go to a store and buy four pairs of socks and I don't necessarily have to look at how much those cost individually and freak out about whether or not we have a $5 pair of socks or a $4 pair of socks. And it has done wonders for my mental health and my stability and my well-being. So yeah, you're not buying happiness, but what you are doing is buying peace of mind. However, that also results in, in higher costs for items, which then wind up still squeezing the lowest earners in our society. And therefore, there will always be people who are stuck in this perpetual cycle of feeling so goddamn stressed over a $3 purchase versus a $4 purchase that they don't have the energy to think about other things that might help them. It's almost like it's a system designed that way. Almost. Anyway, enough of that. <laughs> Quoth assuages his own guilt by just saying, this could pay for so much of my schooling. This could do so much for me. This could... And I'm like, oh, go ahead. Justify your theft. Whatever. Honestly, my real opinion on these things is that we need to be paying attention and propping up the lowest earners in our society rather than encouraging stuff that is essentially like one-off thefts. If you're thinking about it, okay, so if the mayor has already recouped the money by sending out extra tax collectors and they've already come back that means that this stuff rightfully doesn't even belong to the mayor right he should be giving it back to the people right now granted without knowing where each of these tax collectors came from that might be a little tricky to figure out right but then you can have a program that helps the people yeah quoth could theoretically wander from town to town dispersing gold royals he theoretically could be doing that. He also could be championing a system where we pool all of it and make sure that people get fed so the people who have the least can get help. It's not going to happen. Oh, no. But it would be nice. Anyway, Quoth holds on to the lockbox, keeps it safe from all the others. We have the exchange between Tempe and Quoth about learning to play the lute. I think also really important here is Quoth asked Tempe to teach him to use a sword. Yes. You know, like Tempe up to this point has been playing along with Quoth, basically copying him doing the K-Tan. Mostly because it was mostly harmless and Tempe kind of was helping him mostly out of annoyance. However, asking Tempe to teach him how to use a sword crosses a line. This is where Quoth has gone from just copying moves that he saw in a kung fu movie to actually learning how to use a deadly weapon and one is sort of just a dilettante thing just hobby almost and it's something entirely different 
to ask how to learn how to use a weapon meant to kill. And Tempe knows that Quoth, when the chips are down, can be ruthless, and that Quoth is not opposed to using lethal force. But he also knows that Quoth has not necessarily shown what you would call wisdom or discretion in when to use that sort of force. So Tempe does not go into this lightly. If I look at Tempe's calculus, he kind of figures that if Tempe turns Quoth down, Quoth will just keep copying and he'll get good enough that he'll be able to do some damage, get himself into trouble, really seriously hurt somebody else, and he won't be any wiser. It's kind of the same. My design degree gave me enough coding where I can get myself into trouble, but not necessarily get myself out of trouble. And my teachers all knew that, but they wanted to create kind of instigators that would get the coding professionals to actually do the thing we wanted. Hi, I made this thing. It cannot possibly go into the game because it will break everything. Can you make it better? That kind of thing. Well, and... I think he recognizes that Quoth will probably learn how to use a sword one way or the other, but Tempe has the opportunity to teach Quoth the wisdom on when to use a sword in a way that maybe he wouldn't get elsewhere. And I don't think Tempe thinks that this is, quote, the right thing to do, the thing that is, you know, according to his customs and conventions. But I also think he figures that this is probably the least wrong thing to do because if he lets Quoth again with all of this power and none of the restraint out into the world it's only going to lead to sorrow and heartbreak for everyone so I think he's run up against that limit of convention one more thing to note in this chapter is that we get an insight into everybody's personality by what they take from the bandit camp before they just up and leave Dedan grabbed a pair of boots and an armored vest that's nicer than the one he was wearing. He also laid claim to a deck of cards and a set of ivory dice. Hespa took a slender set of shepherd's pipes and tucked almost a dozen knives into the bottom of her pack with the hope of selling them later. Tempe took a whetstone, a brass salt box, and a pair of linen pants that he was then able to dye a familiar blood red. Quoth took a small knife to replace the one that he'd broken, a small shaving razor, and he would have taken more, but his travel sack was already unpleasantly heavy with the weight of the mayor's lockbox. Martin scavenged through the armaments and found a good number of arrows and all the bowstrings that he could find, and then made sure no one else wanted them before taking four long bows that had survived the lightning also planning to sell things. The end of this says, it may seem a little ghoulish, but it is simply the way of the world. Looters become looted, while time and tides make us mercenaries all. And I'm just saying, but that's just a responsible adventuring party. You can't leave all the weapons. You can't leave all the money behind. Where will you be in three campaigns from now if all you ever do is just leave piles of corpses with valuables on them? Anyway. We do need to kind of hurry through a little bit more so that we can get through the end of the episode. But this is kind of traveling by map and through an insect-infected swamp. And watching this little exchange, we've already gone over what Foth and Tempe have been doing. Basically trying to learn the loot and the Katan and 
all about the Lothani. And then we've got Dedan kind of being less of a jerk, but not not a jerk. He gets a little bit of a comeuppance in that he falls into the brackish water of the swamp. And then I like the way that it is said that he suggested several unpleasant, unsanitary things I could do to myself. And I think that that's actually really good writing because it has more impact when you have to think about what Dedan's string of whatever's could have possibly been rather than being told that he said to go fork himself. I also noticed there's a bit of a tonal shift here in how Foth thinks of Dedan. Like, yeah, Dedan swore at him and called him names, told him to go fork himself. But at the same time, like, it's almost an amusing thing at this point. They've been through something together. They're bonded. There's something almost familial about it. I do want to note that the moon was full because we have to have those call outs to probably Denna in some way or somehow. Also, since we know that we're going to be stumbling upon Felurian in a half a page. But one thing I do want to talk about that I think is very serious. After all of this, we see Dedan and Hespa being more tender and loving towards each other. And I am going to point something out as a person who was treated like shirt by someone with sociopathic tendencies for the majority of my 20s. If your partner is only nice to you in times of peace and calm and only on their terms and everyone around you is just waiting for an explosion, that is not a good relationship. It should not be relationship goals. It should not be lauded. It should not be, oh, they're being cute. There's none of that. If your relationship is normally tenuous and tense and pissed off at each other, that's not healthy or good or excusable. I kind of get the sense that we're seeing a lot of trauma bonding more than any actual genuine connection. But I also think that neither one of them are right for either one of them. Not arguing with you on that at all. I'm saying it's the trauma bonding. Like, if you contrast that with yesterday, we did a mildly frustrating activity that had a awesome goal at the end, and it turned out very well, but there are very many ways that it could have turned out very badly. We put up peel and stick wallpaper in your office room. And if you look up, like, Pinterest fails of trying to do something like this, it can be incredibly difficult if you're not in the right headspace to be incredibly methodical, especially once you get to like corners. I mean, peel and stick belies just how difficult it actually really is. Well, because it's sticky already. And if you have to take it off, it loses a little bit of its stick. And so you're trying very hard not to let it have to come off and come back on and come back off and come back on and come back off and come back on. You want to try to do a one and done if you can. And I'm too short, even with a step stool, to reach the ceiling. So Will has to be the one up at the top. But being the one at the top means that he also has to guide where things are going, at least to begin with. And we had to work through things that were frustrating, that were falling on us, that were not sticking, that were not doing things properly, that were not lining up in the way that we wanted them to, that were having a couple of little air bubbles. And then especially once we got to the point where there was a corner that we had to figure out how to deal with. One of the things that I did before we started is I set down expectations of how this would go. 
I don't have a lot of experience doing this, but I have more experience than Will does at most handy things. And so I looked at you and I said, are you ready to take a lot of direction from me and do things very precisely? Are you prepared to do that? And he looked at me, he's like, no, in fact, actually, no. And I'm like, cool. And then I thought about it and like, all right, then we're going to have to rearrange how we're going to do this. We're going to have to figure things out. And then I'm like, I'll be the one at the top and try to figure this out. And then I discovered I'm too short. So I had to do it anyway. <laughs> but regardless of the fact that it was a kind of frustrating thing, we found ways to work with each other yeah. and work with the product and work with the restraints that we had. I have a bad habit of wanting to push through and not eat, not stop, just finish. It's not an admirable quality. And Will has pretty much the opposite. He'll shut down if he doesn't get to abnegate. If you're low on food, on drink, on any of that, it's going to wind up being a bad experience for everybody. And so we had to work within our boundaries, within our Venn diagram overlap of how well we work together. And you know what? We didn't get everything that we had planned to do done yesterday. We got a lot. We got the wallpaper completely up. Yeah, the thing that helped me was realizing that there's these periods where the whole thing is really awkward and weird and it doesn't look quite right. And then recognizing that that's okay, that's how it's supposed to look at this stage. And that it's not going to look like that when you're actually finished. So if you just keep going, you'll be fine. But the thing about it is that we worked really well together on this, on a project that if we hadn't had those ground rules, if we hadn't cared about one another's work style, if we hadn't had the goal in mind, we might have been at each other's throats in a different situation, in a different headspace, in a different year of our marriage, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And I'm just looking at the way that it's described. Did Dan and Hespa turn on each other pretty quickly over, I'm not going to say minor things, but I'm going to say things that they should be used to dealing with. And it isn't cute. It isn't right. It isn't a good relationship between the two of them just because they can be cute sometimes. Yeah, they have a lot of toxic tendencies that they accentuate in one another. But to wrap things up, much like a siren, we hear singing and everyone's like, we must be close to the inn. We must be close to the city. We must be close to at least a farmhouse. I don't want to sleep in the rain, in the muck, in the ick. They've been camping for way too long. It's chores outside. <laughs> so they pack up all their stuff and go off to try to find the source of the singing, which, I mean, why aren't you suspicious? They're singing outdoors. According to your map, you don't have any idea where you are actually because you skirted a swamp. I don't know. Maybe it's just the whole wishful thinking hope. I think there's a fair amount of wishful thinking at this point on their part. And who can blame them? They, <laughs> they just want to be done. I mean, I know that when we're traveling back home from a vacation or, you know, a not so vacation, but trip to somewhere else. And we're just like, okay, five more miles. Okay. Four and a half more miles. Okay, four and a quarter miles. I want to go home and sleep in my bed. I can sympathize, but also it just seems like if this was a D&D &D party, I know I keep bringing it back to that, but if this was D&D, &D, I would be rolling for like Arcana and Investigate 
and all and hide and all of this stuff, trying to just make sure that I wasn't about to walk into a weird ass trap. It's the sort of thing with metagame knowledge that that's what you would do, but I think their decision making makes sense within the context of where they are as people. Well, not to belabor the point, they go into a clearing, and what should they find? It's Felurian. Dun, dun, dun! And that's where we end. All right. So with that, let's move into the Phronemos of the week. So this week, our Aristotelian model of practical wisdom here is Tempe. As per usual in this group. It's Tempe or Martin. They've been trading back and forth. In this, this case, Tempe, I think, is a really good example of knowing the difference between knowing how to access power and then how to use it wisely. He spends more time educating Quoth on the training of his social and moral muscles than his physical ones. Because he recognizes that Quoth really doesn't exercise a whole lot in the way of moral thinking beyond, you know, what's going to immediately benefit him. Quoth in general doesn't think about what do his friends need? What do his friends want? What does he want? What does he need? He doesn't really think beyond that immediate need. And, you know, he'll occasionally step in to help someone who is in immediate danger, but he doesn't oftentimes think very deeply about other people as people. He is perpetually just seeing people walking around with quest giver signs over them, as far as he's concerned. He doesn't really think of them too very deeply. So Tempe is trying to get him to think a little bit more about what are the appropriate uses of force. Because heretofore, Quoth hasn't thought too much about that at all. And he is also, we, we learn he's been showing a fair amount of restraint in how he's been dealing with Quoth's, frankly, maybe a little insulting <laughs> attempts to do the K-Tan. Like I say, Quoth has done the equivalent of someone who's watched a kung fu movie thinking that they know how to do kung fu, and that is nothing like that at all. I've watched a lot of kung fu movies. I don't know kung fu. I don't know jack shirt about kung fu. All I know is what I've seen in the movies, and I admit that that's what I know, and that really doesn't amount to anything. And you would be remiss to think that your brief knowledge of karate has anything to do with it either. Exactly. So once Tempe is actually committed to teaching Quoth how to use a sword, he's like, okay, well, if that's what you really want, I'm going to get serious about it. So he immediately starts to work critiquing every single element of Quoth's technique, which, remember, has mostly just been copycat up till this point. He doesn't understand the biomechanics of any of this. He doesn't understand what all of these things actually mean. And up to this point, Tempe's really only been correcting the most grossly obvious things, not all of the million little things that he's gotten wrong. And, you know, being able to do this in a way that keeps a student coming back for more is also a skill. Like, it's very easy to see where someone is lacking in picking up a new thing to see all of their mistakes, all of the little things that aren't being done right. It is something very different to then figure out how to bring these to light and then provide coaching in a way that the student will actually accept it and learn from it. I've seen people sometimes who will deliver that 
criticism very harshly in ways that only put people on the defensive. And I think that Tempe is able to keep Quoth from getting defensive shows a degree of wisdom that maybe he doesn't always get credit for. Well, I think that that's a good choice. Thank you. I have the recommended thing of the week. And simply put, one of the groups that I'm in is probably, like, I think it was probably the neurodivergent but make it home group that I'm in on Facebook. Someone said something that I think is very profound and I think that I'm going to recommend what they said. And then I'm going to kind of give a little explanation of what it means. I refuse to rent my house from a potential new owner in the future. Meaning I refuse to make my home something that is ideal to resell later on in the future. I don't want to make my space something that is catering to a mythical future person that might inhabit my space. And I want to embrace that. Now, I know not everyone has the freedom and most people, like when you rent, you can't make major changes, especially to structural changes or painting choices or any of those things. But if you have the luxury, if you have the privilege, if you have the ability to put up shelves in places that maybe people wouldn't normally put shelves, put up wallpaper that maybe isn't to everybody's taste, make modifications to your space to make it comfortable for you. This person put chalkboard paint on the sliding doors for their kitchen pantry. It's because it's something that made sense to them. It's because it helped them. I love the idea that you should do things for yourself without worrying about future owners, future you, future whatever. You shouldn't mortgage your present for your future if there is no defined end goal for it. Because granted, we did do that a little bit during the beginning of the pandemic when there was a whole bunch of lockdowns and there was a whole bunch of restrictions on what people could do out and about. It gave us the opportunity to start saving for our home. It's not what allowed us to actually get our home because honestly, again, with those things of like higher salary leads to more things that are unlocked, go figure. But I put a set of shelves above my piano in a place that future owners will probably use this room for a bedroom. And that is probably where they'd put their bed. And those two things aren't compatible. But I don't care. This is my room now. I want my room the way I want my room. And I refuse to cater my space to a future owner. Well, and especially one that is undefined. Like, it'd be one thing if it was like, this will eventually be passed on to a very specific person and et cetera, et cetera. I might as well make it nice for them. Except you're still like, who's making it nice for you? And the future owner can do whatever they want with it. They can patch holes. They can paint. I don't care. By that point, it won't be mine. And like, if we're going to eventually sell, we can always do some things to make it more buyer friendly at that point. We don't have to rush to do that now. Or we don't have to prevent ourselves from having what we want to accommodate the future. Yeah. And maybe that's something that you can take into a different type of space that maybe you do rent. You can always ask your landlords, hey, can I put up shelves here? Don't be afraid to do that. If not, find a solution that works for you that's similar. 
You'll never know unless you ask. And I know that for me, if I were ever to rent out our home, presumably we wouldn't be living here anymore. That within reason, as long as they're not destroying the structure and are happy enough to let me, you know, kind of see what they've done and be excited about what they've done, I'd let most anything fly. So especially if you're renting from a private landlord, it doesn't hurt to ask. Definitely. So with that, let's move on to seven words. You have the books. All right. There were a few at the beginning that were actually really good. We've got, don't cross him. I've seen him angry. I think he called the lightning down. We've got, there was a murmur from everyone present. We also have, well, the lightning is difficult to explain. And the one that I actually chose is, a little mystery wouldn't hurt my reputation. Because that is quintessentially Kvothe. That's definitely Kvothe prioritizing razzle-dazzle over substance. Quintessentially Kvothe. Cool. So for me, I have words from life. And this is from a recipe that just amused me. Oh dear. <laughs> Plonk the slices onto the lined tray. Mostly just because I loved the verb plonk. So a little bit of backstory on this one is that because I have an allergy to one of the most common ingredients in food ever, onions, we have chosen not to do an actual meal kit type thing like HelloFresh or Blue Apron, not because they're bad services because we've used them before and they're actually pretty good, but because at this point we'd prefer that I'd be able to breathe. So we're going with this app that is by a kind of a YouTube channel that we've watched called Sorted. And the app gives you three recipes and helps you with meal planning that way. And then allows you to kind of copy a grocery list and whatnot. And it'll give you the recipes either in a guided form or in written form. And because it is British and because it amuses us, Every time that we're about to cook, Will will go through and read all of the verbs. Tip this into the frying pan or whack it under the grill or plonk it into the, th the thing. Chuck it in. I just imagine this willowy Brit flailing about the kitchen, just plonking and chucking and tipping and whacking everything. <laughs> You can also tell when they've copy-pasted some of the recipe bits. Oh yes, there's definitely some copy-pasta verbiage in there. Get on with the rest of the dish while you wait. <laughs> yes, so it... Crack on with some cleaning. Makes everything just a little more fun when we can make fun of the way that it's written. Brit's in need of a side. Mushy peas! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no anyway that's the other great thing about that app is that we can choose to replace out ingredients like the constant need for mushy peas you never need mushy peas there are other things you can have anyway with that i'd like to thank you for potting with me thank you for potting with me and thank you for listening to tales from the waystone join us next time on tales from the waystone as we cover chapters 95 through 97 of the wise man's fear through the lens of stages of infatuation we would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. 
Audio production, editing, and social media coordination courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page. And if you do not have the means to do so, or you just don't want to give us any money, that's perfectly fine. There is a 14-day free trial available to anyone that would like to hear our thoughts on the Sandman. Awesome. Anyway, with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Well, you got a 50-50 chance. You'd think after, like, three years, I would know if I typically hear myself out of the left speaker or the right speaker. Yeah, I also think, though, that after that much time, you just don't even think about it in those terms. You're just so used to it one way or the other. How often have you consciously thought about it? I haven't. There you go. Why did I unplug the lav mics? Because you wanted to get them untangled? This might be weird editing, and it might be absolutely normal, and I don't know which one it will be. Well, one way to find out. Mm -hmm. Weird editing isn't the weirdest thing that we've had to deal with. No. It is true.